I was thinking through some of the famous couples in life, uh, brothers mostly, and uh, some of them are famous, some of them are infamous. You can think of an infamous one right away, the James brothers, remember them, Jesse and his brother Frank. Uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright, they, they were good guys, they did a lot for us in aviation. Uh, the Kennedy family, Robert, Ted, John, uh, they certainly helped develop the way this nation would go. My favorite, the Marx Brothers. I feel like they, they contributed a lot uh, in life that is meaningful to me. Um, Richard and Wally Hostetter, no, I, I don't know how they got in there. Um, but listen, the most famous brotherhood ever is found in the scripture. And it's these two guys that Jesus called sons of thunder, James and John. And the reason, to me, they are more famous than anyone else that's ever existed in history is they're the ones that got caught doing something they shouldn't have done by Jesus himself. Because these two guys come to Jesus and they basically say this, hey, let's make a deal. Really? You don't make deals with God. Listen to what they said in Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Real simple request. Ridiculous. These guys had no idea what they were asking. They were spiritually dense. Because they've been walking with him for years now, listening to what he had to say. What did he say? He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the light. I'm the bread. I'm the resurrection. I mean, everything comes through the Father to me. Everything gets to the Father comes through me. I mean, on and on he goes in these dialogues of who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is God. And they're just not listening. They're taking their eyes away from all of this that they've heard. They're mixing kind of a holy zeal with personal ambition. And that's what you have to be careful of. You see, God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. He doesn't really need us to accomplish his purpose. But he's given us the privilege of pursuing his purpose that he's put into us in such a way that if we will follow that purpose, we will glorify him. But these guys had just lost it. They didn't hear what he said, let alone did they respond to what he had done. Think of the numbers of miracles they saw. Remember John said if everything he did was recorded, the libraries couldn't hold it. So what we read about is just a smidgen of what he actually did. And what did he do? Well, he healed a leper. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to those who couldn't hear. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He stilled the storms. My goodness, if you watch enough of that, you should certainly believe. Believe what? Believe that he is Messiah. He is who he said he is. And now, thousands of years later, there are still those who doubt. 
And yet we've heard more than these men heard. We've seen more throughout all of history than they have seen. And yet for some reason, we still doubt. Even those who are followers of Christ have doubts. And that was what was happening with James and John. As they had their eyes set in a, in a different direction. And they wanted to make a deal with God. You don't make deals with God. I knew a Frenchman by the name of Itin. Itin was in full-time ministry in Bamako, Mali. And when my wife and I went there to do ministry, we met him, we served with him, and he told me his testimony. He had been the number one gang leader in all of Bamako. And I said, well, how in the world did you become this, the leader of a Christian ministry? He said, well, I was, I was a terrible person. Everyone was after me. The government wanted me dead. And he said, one day I was on my motorcycle and a truck ran over me and I went up into the air. And he said, on my way up, I said, God, if you'll save me, I'll serve you. <laughs> now, what do you think God does? Let me consider that for a minute. Is there something I should do with this? I said, let me just pause history. Stop. Everything stop in motion. I have to figure out whether I need you or not. <laughs> not at all. He lands, and he's got some broken bones, and he heals, and he realizes, okay, I'm still alive, and I made a promise. I'm going to have to keep that promise. So he finds a pastor who leads him to the Lord. He accepts Jesus Christ. He goes to the government officials and becomes their representatives to the gangs, the very ones that he was leading who were doing what Paul did in Old Testament days and in New Testament days, because Itain was in charge of persecuting Christians. And now all of those whom he persecuted are finding that he's really a believer now. Did he make a deal with God? No, you don't make deals with God. God had planned from before the foundation of the world that Itain would be his. This just happened to be the way that he convinced Itain. Has he convinced you? Is it going to take some kind of a wreck in your life? before you understand who Jesus Christ is, before you say, okay, willingly, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to keep my eye on you. Holy zeal laced with selfish ambition is in opposition to the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is founded on selflessness. Our world is founded on selfishness where we put ourselves before others instead of where Christ came and thinking it not robbery became a man and put himself after others. See, that's what John and James were missing and it's just hard for us to understand how could you miss it? But then we have to be careful. How could we miss it? How can you miss the fact of who Jesus says he is? The scripture gives us the same stories they heard. The scriptures gives us the words he spoke that they heard. Now they are more culpable because they actually walked with him. But Jesus himself said, blessed not only are those who have seen and hear, but more blessed are those who have not seen and believe. That's you and me. Believe that the word of God is true. Believe that it has everything in it that you need for faith and salvation and life. It does. So every day when you open that word, you're hearing from God 
the deal he has for you today. What it is he wants you to accomplish today. What is our purpose? Some have defined it through the centuries as glorifying God and enjoying him forever. That sounds easy, but it's not. To glorify God takes absolute total surrender. My wife has a friend who says that she likes to think that she's carrying around with her a railroad spike so she can crucify herself all day long, thinking of others before herself. That's surrender. Surrender is what glorifies God. It's yielding to him, to his desire, to his will. That's what surrender is. Surrender is putting other people first. So where does the joy come from when you do that? Joy comes in the morning. Joy comes for me like I love waking up. Not just because I knew today that I'd get to do this for God, but just the fact that I woke up. Okay, you wake up and you realize, if it weren't for your loving kindness, I would have been consumed. But each morning is new. Great is your faithfulness unto us. And so I hold on to that faithfulness and I get joy out of it. And then I get joy out of serving. And I know that God is receiving that same joy. And I know that my joy is not going to be limited to this level. My joy is going to be for eternity. So I can worship him and enjoy him forever. James and John almost blew that by what they said to Jesus. You see, here's, here's the twist in this. What they said when it's translated in English is, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. But if you go back to the original Greek, it is an imperative. It is a demand. It's not an ask. They're saying, Jesus, you will do this for us. That is a boldness that's very dangerous because you don't talk to him like that. Now, you and I do have that privilege because God gave it to us in the scriptures that in your time of need, if you have fulfilled your vows unto him and you call upon him, he will deliver you. When things are turning in the wrong direction, I'm going to go to him. And say, Lord, you made promises. That's different than making a deal. I'm going to claim scripture in every aspect of my life because that's where I'm told to. If I pray his word back to him, he's going to respond. I can't control the response. But I can control my own attitude toward that response. And I can worship God. And I can thank him in every situation. Like Paul said no matter what the situation I am there in, I am content. I am happy to be his. James and John were wrestling with this. They had even sent their mother, Salome, to try to convince Jesus that this is what they should do. They had really missed the vision of what they were called to do. Perhaps the greatest gap in their thinking was they forgot about the cost that Jesus was going to pay. You see, there is no crown without a cross. Without the bruising of him, there's no benefit for us. Without his suffering and death, we remain in our sin. Now, they knew just enough to understand that he was headed toward the permanent establishment of a kingdom. 
But they misinterpreted it, believing that when he got to Jerusalem, he would overtake Israel and Rome, and he would become an earthly king, and they wanted to be seated as vice president and secretary of state. You know, they just, they wanted those top positions with him. And he had to correct them. Now, you and I are not that much unlike them. So let me give you a caution that I had to give myself. Paul gives it in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you're standing firm, beware lest you fall. There's not a one of us in here who is not potentially subject to falling away from Jesus Christ. Not a single one of us. So we have to be very serious about following him and the questions we ask him. Now here's, here's one of the things, the many things that I love about Jesus. Somebody asked me, what do you love about him? I said, everything. I mean, what would I not love about him? But when he's asked a question in the scriptures, most often he answers with a question. So we turn a little bit of a tide here where Jesus is now going to take over this conversation with these two guys. And he basically is saying this to them. Okay. I want you to try something on for size. See how this fits. Look what he says. Starting in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus had worked with these guys for so long. Just recently, John had said to a man who was casting out demons, you can't do that anymore because you're not with us. And James had said, the Samaritans aren't paying attention to us, so let's call down fire. That's why he called them sons of thunder. They were so aggressive. But Jesus comes back now, and with this aggression that they have where we want to sit on the right and on the left, Jesus said, listen, my cup, what's he talking about? Isaiah 51, you go back and read it. It gives you the full understanding of the wrath of God. That's the cup of which he speaks. That God's wrath was coming against the disobedience of the people in Isaiah's time. When Jesus goes into the garden, the night of his arrest, what is it that he says? Father, take this cup from me. He's talking about if there was any way possible that I could achieve what you want without going through the wrath that I know you're going to bring, take it from me. But what's the next statement? It's a statement of surrender. Not my will, but your will be done. Ever the servant, always willing to place others ahead of himself. To James and John, can you really take that cup? Can you take the cup that's filled with the wrath of God and have it pour down upon you? He said, you will, but not the same way I'm going to take it. Because see, he took it for us. So that that wrath of God does not come against those of us who are found in Christ. We've passed through that resurrection. We don't have to worry about God's wrath anymore because we are saved and secure in him. 
And then he says, what about my baptism? And we're not talking about the water baptism that he experienced with John. We're talking about a baptism that is reflective of the baptism of suffering on the cross, of separation from the Father, of being in hell and feeling what it is like to be punished for sin. We're talking about death. You don't have to go through that, James, John. You can't go through it because even if you did, it wouldn't accomplish what I'm going to accomplish by going through it myself. But you will have the cup of wrath and you will have the blessing as a result of that cup because I've been through it. But you'll also have the baptism of death, but you'll pass through death because it no longer will have a sting on you. And in fact, that's what happened to them. James was the very first martyr of the church. He's the first one, the first apostle to die. And oddly enough, John is the last one on the Isle of Patmos where he's been exiled and he has that vision of the revelation. So Jesus says to them, look guys, your eyes have been focused on an earthly kingdom. You've been focused on this world. And you've got to change your focus because this world holds nothing for you and for me. It's the world beyond that we're seeking. It's learning how to live right where you are with the gifts and abilities that God has given you now to bring glory to his name and enjoy it. And in those times of difficulty, which will come, then in those times when suffering happens, because it's appointed unto us not only to believe but to suffer on his behalf, you can turn to God and you can cry out for help. And whatever form and fashion he chooses, he's going to help you. I was praying and saying, God, is there a real-life illustration of this? I don't feel I have one in my own life, but I came across the story of a professional football player. Now, I'm talking about real football, not kicking with your foot like Alan talks about, okay? <laughs> this football player's name is Brian Dawkins. He's retired from professional football now. He went to college at Clemson, grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, became an All-American at Clemson, has actually been enrolled in their Hall of Fame, and then he went off to the Philadelphia Eagles. And there he played for 16 years, making the Pro Bowl, which is the, the top bowl you can get, something like 12 or 13 out of those 16. He retired from them and went to play for the, the Broncos out in Colorado, in Denver. And then he retired completely. And this past August, he was installed in the Professional Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Now, I didn't know that much about him, but when I found out that much, I wanted to find out more, so I found a video on one of the NFL channels that actually tells about his life. And I heard his speech when he gave it in Canton, Ohio, back in August. I want to tell you parts of it. Brian Dawkins will forever be remembered as one of the greatest leaders in the history of the Philadelphia Eagles. He used to crawl out onto the playing field like a spider. And that's what he was known for. I know it's weird, but that was his signature. And then he'd jump up and he'd do flips and everybody thought it was great. 
How much courage does it take to do that at the Hall of Fame? He came crawling out on the stage, and the place went crazy because that's his signature. And then he got up, and here's what the commentary said. For much of his address, Dawkins insisted that his leadership wasn't the only thing that got him through the physical journey through the NFL and through life in general. Sporting a gold Hall of Fame jacket, he showed that on the inside he had had stitched, blessed by the best. The longtime Eagle and Denver Bronco was fresh off of a week in which he opened up to the press about depression and suicidal thoughts that haunted him early on in his career. And he made it very clear over the weekend that in addition to his friends and family, like his wife Connie, God played a part in his perseverance. He said, I did not do this myself. I did not. And he shared how his Christian faith, his relationship with Christ, spawned a new perspective on anger he confronted as a youngster. He said, his days of contemplating suicide increased my faith once I began to lean on God for help. And then in his final comments, and I watched this on TV, he said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for blessing me with the sense to understand that I didn't do it by myself. You have guided me the whole way. You've orchestrated my life. You've stayed faithful to me, and I cannot wait to see what you're going to do with me next. You see, that's, that's a Christian who was blessed in a different way than most of us because he has seen fame. He has seen fortune. And that's what the world seeks after. He wasn't seeking that. He just wanted to be the best he could be with the talents he had been given. And that's the challenge to you and to me is to be the very best we can be with the talents we've been given. All you need is one talent. And you can take that and you can multiply it and use it for the kingdom of God. But it requires you to keep your eyes on Jesus, to keep yourself focused. Because remember, Jesus was saying this, not in his own words, but through his actions. I never planned to be an earthly king. I never planned to have a lot of wealth. I never planned to be popular. My plan is to live, to suffer, to die, to pay the price, to be resurrected, to ascend, and to return. That's my plan. And then the kingdom in its fullness will be established. You and I are members of that kingdom. So we have been called to follow him and do the things he wants us to do. Living the Christian life is not about privilege. It's about sacrifice. There's a guy, I don't know who wrote this, but I'm taking his quote and I'm stealing it because I just love this quote, and you will too. Watch this. While people of the world are climbing the ladder of success, people of God's kingdom are climbing down the ladder to greatness. We climb down to get into greatness. So Jesus has set the stage now for the opposite of the world. The world is power and prestige. The world is filled with a desire for possessions. The kingdom of God is filled with humility and grace and mercy. It's what has been called the law 
of moral fitness. Let me read verses 41 through 44. When the ten, that's the rest of the disciples, heard what James and John had done, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. That is the law of moral fitness. Now, he uses a couple of words in there that are very significant for us to understand. When he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The word servant there means responding to an expressed need. So if you have a need and you express that need, it's up to all of us in here, based on the law of, of this moral fitness, for us to meet that need. For us to do that which would benefit the person who has the need. And that's what we try to do here. That's what we do through our deacon ministry. Where we've just put out tons of money into people's lives to help them. Both in the church and in the community. So we're trying to fulfill this law of moral fitness. Jesus uses another word where he says whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Slave means that you do not have a right of refusal. You are under the master's command. You cannot say no to what he commands you to do. So he's making two statements here. One, we serve one another, and we do whatever God tells us to do in that service to one another. Now notice this. We are great because of our service. We're not great through our service. People get that confused. Greatness through service means I do so many things and I do them all so well. Well, that's all about you. The greatness of service means that no matter what service is required of you, when you do it to glorify him and you enjoy doing it, no matter how hard it might be or how difficult, then you're being blessed and you're blessing God because of the service that you're performing. That's the life of Christ. That's exactly how Christ lived his life. You and I are bond servants. We are slaves of Jesus's. Fortunately, we have an eternal master who loves us and functions by grace and mercy. And so we can hold on to, to him. And when he says, do this or do that, then we should respond positively. Say, okay, Lord, even if it doesn't make sense, do it. Because God has a plan behind it. Jesus then takes us to a pivotal point in the book of Mark. For now, he's going to give us the statement that identifies his entire purpose and ministry for his life on this earth. It's also the turning point because chapters 1 through this point of 10 are all about being a servant of God. He's training the disciples to serve. He's training you and me to serve. Now, from 1045 to the end of the book, chapter 16, God is talking about the cross, about what it cost, because without the cost, there's no crown. There's a cost to him, there's a cost to you and to me. 
We need to understand that cost. Let me read what Jesus said. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word ransom there means instead of or in favor of. So he ransomed his life in favor of you and me. He made the choice to obey the Father in heaven and pay the ultimate price, which is the price of sin that you and I never have to make because of our relationship with him. He made that choice and he carried it out as a ransom. When it says for many, don't get confused on that. All it's saying is it wasn't just for one. It wasn't just for Jesus himself. It was for many. So he has set the stage on what it means to be a servant. How are you serving the Lord? Are you listening to what he's saying? I'm not talking about only in the church. There are plenty of opportunities here, even more coming up as we launch the Alma campus. But how are you serving every day? You get up in the morning and say, Lord, would you show me something today that will allow me to serve your purpose as a servant? And, and I don't need any accolades from it. I don't need any glory. I don't need people to say thank you. I just need to do something I know is going to glorify you. I challenge you to do that this week. I did it this past week because I was given the opportunity to serve in one of my daughter's ministries in downtown Detroit. It was very hot. There was very little air conditioning available. And I was doing one of the things that I do so well. I was cutting with scissors and <laughs> pasting with tape and, you know, helping with crafts. And oh, I, I did it with a smile, right? And I said, God, if this is what you want me doing, this is fine. I can do this. And whatever it needs, you know, would you go get us some water? Yeah, I'll go get you some water. And I brought it back. And one day I'm sitting out on a little concrete bench area and a few people are around and this one lady turns to me and she says, I hate to ask this, but do you have 50 cents? And I'm thinking, no one begging asked for 50 cents. So she must really need 50 cents. Well, I didn't have any money on me. So my first thought was the honest statement, no, I don't have any. But God stopped me in that. He said, yes, you do. You have some change in your car right there in that little section where you keep change every time you buy coffee and get change. You've got change. Go get it. But it's hot. <laughs> yeah, it's so far over there. <laughs> yes, Lord. And you go and get in there. Well, there were four quarters. Now, I'm like James and John. I'm like you. My first thought is two quarters. That's what she asked for, right? Then I thought, no, I better give her all four. He said they were theirs, and there they are. So I picked up four quarters. I came back. And there was a crowd around her, and I didn't want to embarrass her. So I just kind of went up and put my hand on her hand and shook her hand. Have you ever had that happen? I hope you have, where somebody gives you something of value, but they hide it, you know. And, and she said, you know, God bless you. God is going to multiply and bless you. And I said, he always does. I, I thank you. I'm just glad I could give you a dollar. That was on Wednesday. Friday night, we had the closing program. And after the closing program with all the kids singing and dancing and having a great time, we served cake and ice cream and cupcakes and cookies. And it, it was fun and it was all very good. Um, somebody has to taste it. And 
the pastor of the church. This is an inner city Detroit church. It does not have wealth. It doesn't have anything. He came up to me and he said, God has called me to sacrifice and bless you. And he puts out his hand to shake my hand and there's a bill in the hand. And I'm thinking, that's interesting. I just did that two days ago with a dollar. He said, now, this is not for you. You know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> he said, I'm seeding this in to ministry. He said, God's called me to serve like this. And so now you have this responsibility to serve. I did not know that my wife had invited two missionaries to go out to dinner that night after the event. And so I told her what had happened. She said, well, we're going to use it for the dinner because they're missionaries. Uh, it was a $100 bill. Now, if you think about the economy of God, you know, give a dollar, get a hundred. <laughs> that works. <laughs> but it's not about you and it's not about me. All right, so half of that money is still available to do vision and mission work. And I'm waiting for God to tell me, so don't you come to me and say, you know, I have an idea. <laughs> no, God will direct me on where the rest of this goes. But all I accomplished was this. I acted like a slave to God, and I served the need of another person. That's what we're all about here. So we want you to be servants of the Most High God and serve him and enjoy it. Love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that today you will cause us to surrender, that we will surrender to you totally in every way in our lives, and that your power and your love and your mercy and your grace would just pour down upon us. Thank you for the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he rules our lives. And thank you for life. Lord, we commit ourselves to you again today to serve others and to serve you. So be pleased with our surrender, we pray in your name. Amen.